Hello and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Uh, today I'm joined by several leaders of the world of cyber uh, to discuss is cloud right for my organization. Um, so before we delve into the topic in a bit more detail, I'd like to put around the room with some introductions. Uh, Paul, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. I'm Paul Baird. I'm the Chief Technical Security Officer for Qualys. Thanks, Paul. And Darren? I'm Darren Desmond. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for the AA Group. Thank you. And James? Uh, my name is James Eatley. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer for NetHope, which is a consortium of 65 of the world's largest nonprofit organizations. Thanks, James. And finally, Adam. Ivan Milenkovic um, used to be Group Chief Information Security Officer for WebHelp until seven days ago. Upwards and onwards from there. We'll see what's next. Okay, thank you very much. And now, a word from our sponsor, Qualys. But who are Qualys? Qualys is recognized as an industry pioneer and a premium provider of cutting-edge cloud-based security compliance and IT solutions, backed by a global subscriber base exceeding 10,000 customers. Qualys is incredibly proud to be supporting Evolution Podcasts. Together, we are dedicated to addressing the prevalent challenges in the ever-changing landscape of cybersecurity. Qualys assists organizations in consolidating and automating their security and compliance solutions onto a unified platform, resulting in enhanced agility, improved business outcomes, and a significant cost reduction. Utilizing a single agent, the Qualys Cloud Platform delivers continuous critical security intelligence and remediation with comprehensive coverage extending across on-premise, endpoints, servers, public and private cloud, containers, and mobile devices, ensuring robust security across a diverse environment. For more information, please visit Qualys.com and see for yourself how Qualys can have your business manage and reduce your cyber risk at speed, at scale, and in a quantifiable way. I say, so now we're all introduced, uh, let's move on to the topic. So you all have a question or statement on is cloud still right for my organization? Uh, as usual, I work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reason behind it and give each of you an opportunity to uh, give your take on the situation. So let's get started with, uh, with Paul. Paul, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Okay, so with the distinct lack of cloud-trained professionals in IT and cybersecurity disciplines, is cloud adoption right for every organization? Sure. James, we'll come to you first. It's a great question. Um, I mean, my answer to the is it right for everyone is always it depends. Um, I think actually on on training, um, for me, one of the most compelling arguments in favor of cloud is um, not having to maintain technical skill sets in-house that you would otherwise need if you were doing things on-prem. Um, so with some caveats, I think my short hot take is actually provided you do it carefully, narrowing what you have to care about potentially lets you care slightly less about uh, not having some of the right skills in your team. But of course, it, it will depend on the organization, the sort of platforms that you're using. Okay. Thanks, James. Ivan, go to you. Uh, I'd agree with James. It depends. Uh, it is one of those where, uh, yes, again, as as James said, uh, it's it's interesting. I think you need a slightly different skill set. So th there's a bit of uh, alteration uh, needed there, but still at, at its core, uh, I guess the, the the stuff you want to put in a cloud, you would need some sort of expertise uh, in house, one way or uh, or another. Uh, the, the challenge that I see there is the fact that uh, those things change at a dramatic pace and actually keeping up is not easy. And I guess from, from my perspective, that's why we do have a bit of a gap. So uh, 
it's definitely not the right thing for everybody. Uh, I come from a, from an interesting industry where uh, cloud actually wasn't a huge thing. So, you know, maybe that's also skewing my my take on this. Uh, some people might be, uh, you know, uh, better off with the on-prem stuff. Some people like to sweat the assets if you want. But ultimately, some organizations are in a position that they just must go forward. They must push. Otherwise, uh, they, they lose business. And for them, obviously, it's, you know, it's inevitable and they must be able to keep up. So it's really just, you know, finding the right resources, making sure that people stay up to date and making sure that you invest in your people so that, they can basically do what they're supposed to. Thanks, Ivan. Darren? Um, so I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it very much depends. But this, from my perspective, it would be around the organization's uh, business strategy. So um, what I mean by that is if they considered cloud as part of a holistic business strategy, because it doesn't, it's not just about moving your stuff to the cloud. It's about making sure you invested in your people, as Ivan said. Um, make, make, make sure that you've got the right um, model for your cloud um, systems and infrastructure. And to ensure, you know, that includes a financial model, right? Because obviously, if you've been sweating the assets, as Ivan just alluded to, you're going to switch from a CapEx expenditure to an OpEx expenditure quite quickly. And if your organization isn't set up to handle that and expecting it, then it's going to create some budgetary speed bumps further down the line. Um, you do need to invest in, in training and understanding, you know, what level of security, for instance, and resilience, more importantly, resilience, I'd say, you need to apply to your organization, whether well, that's a key factor in, in transitioning to cloud. And then you need to understand, you know, what you're going to do with the applications, the, the important business services you currently run on-prem. You know, do they need to partially migrate to cloud? Do they need to fully migrate to cloud? Do they need to stay on-prem? What regulatory frameworks do you need to apply to them and adhere to? So lots of considerations beyond the technical from a business standpoint. Um, and I, I think that's probably the most important thing to get right because a cloud strategy should be driven by the business rather than IT um, and everything else should flow out the back of that. Now that's an ideal world, right? Typically what you tend to find is, um, and certainly what I've found over the last 10 years, is the, the business doesn't really know what it wants from cloud. It just know, uh, they just know that they want all the stuff and they want it now and, and they want everything at speed they want it securely they want it resilient they don't want to pay through the nose for it um and they want options so typically that that business requirement doesn't translate into an it requirement um and again you know it's much broader than just an it um challenge anyway so i think it, it has to start at the top in terms of the strategy of the business um as as state is going to follow i think the clear understanding of the impacts from a financial people perspective from a procurement perspective, you know, the way you deal with your third party suppliers um, and what we can expect to achieve in terms of business resilience from, from your security, sorry, your um, cloud strategy. So in the past, again, I've worked in organizations that said they've, had a, they've got a cloud first strategy. When some of these things have surfaced as a result of the initial implementation or even the discovery piece, they've decided not to go with the cloud first strategy and the cloud appropriate strategy. So it very much depends, going back to the initial comment from uh, from James there. Thanks, sir. And Paul, anything to add? Uh, I do like that it depends, and I think that is so true with uh, with, with cloud uh, adoption. Every organization is going to be different. Um, the one thing I'd like to highlight is also cloud is a huge umbrella of services. So there's so many different technologies in there. And just understanding where an organization's responsibilities start and finish. So if they're picking up uh, software as a service, most of that sits on the vendor side. But if they have dev teams spinning up containerization, then a lot more of that sits with 
their own internal teams. And I think it's just making sure the business understands where responsibilities start and where they finish so they don't get, dare I say, caught with their trousers down in the middle of an incident when they're pointing at their supplier and the supplier saying, nothing to do with us, which happens a lot with cloud adoption. Thanks, Bob. Okay, James, we'll uh, come to you next for your question. Uh, so, I mean, maybe kind of picking up on the theme a bit, um, you know, you sort of Paul touched on um, responsibilities and, and what we have to think about caring about when we adopt the cloud. Um, I think my question to you guys is, how does cloud adoption change uh, our supply chain, um, the kinds of services and products we procure? And what does that mean in terms of our adoption, um, particularly as it relates to the sort of cybersecurity programs that we have to maintain when we're heavy cloud users? Thanks, James. Yeah, Great question. Uh, I guess it changes a lot, but on the flip side, it doesn't really change the core principles. Uh, it's down to uh, doing our homeworks correctly. It's down to setting up the, the vendor risk management programs correctly, whether it's cloud or something else. You know, in my mind, uh, the, there isn't much difference. What's important is for people to understand basically what's going out there, what's the uh, what's the data, what is the business process, uh, what is uh, surrounding that, that particular you know, service or whatever else you're consuming, and ultimately understanding which risks are involved with it. Because at the end of the day, uh, sometimes I get we you know get that sort of a tunnel vision and, and we only talk about cyber and infosec risks. Whereas when it comes to third parties and, you know, yes, we're talking about cloud specifically here, but there are so many other risks that need to be considered as well. Whether we're talking about, you know, financial risks some strategic risks and whatnot, uh, maybe some of those issues sit with, you know, business continuity teams. Uh, maybe they do sit directly with the InfoSec function. Long story short, I believe that it's very important in any case to properly identify and tier your suppliers. It's very important to obviously put them in the right buckets and uh, actually also get the, the, the buying from the business in terms of who actually owns the contract. You know, uh, yes, we might be talking about something as simple as Office 365 on one side or some sort of, uh, you know, kind of proper platform as a service or uh, or something else. But at the end of the day, the ownership must be there and that understanding needs to come from uh, from the owner uh, one way or another. Uh, again, everybody else in the enterprise needs to be involved. So uh, again, uh, in, in, in my view, not the clear answer to this one. And again, in my view, I wouldn't really separate uh, cloud from anything else that we do these days. Uh, those things need to be properly understood, properly onboarded, and there must be ultimately, uh, you know, all the mechanisms uh, must be in place from contractual to, uh, you know, how you really go about it, how you validate uh, and, and, and vet a particular vendor and or service. Um, again, a complex story, you know, however you take it, a complex story. Uh, I would also like to, to point out something that I hear many of our colleagues struggle with, uh, when they're dealing with uh, with big beasts along the lines of you know Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and whatnot, uh, you're consuming uh, plenty of services on their side. You're trying to to uh, drive your uh, risk management program, but you're hitting a wall when it comes to these guys. You know you're you're only pointed at uh, at a website with a list of their certifications. You can't get any sort of uh, 
additional clauses in the contract that you feel you should have there and so on and so on. So I'm not suggesting here that big guys are a problem. In any case, you know, I, I think that when it comes to security, at least you have plenty more uh, safety and security around these big companies. But it's again down to understanding, down to leverage, down to how do you choose your services and who's responsible for them. So hopefully that gives you at least part of the answer. Thanks, Ivan. Uh, Darren, come to you. Um, so to answer the question, what does the cloud do to our supply chains? I guess that the biggest challenge for me um, in my current organization is around third-party components in code and how we manage those. At the moment, um, we're still working on that. And, you know, you, you could look more than one or two or three layers deep in your supply chain and find many millions of lines of third-party components code. So um, that's that's the, the biggest concern for me. Um, I think from a security perspective and implementing or adopting a security strategy, it's actually been quite positive. Um, I have worked in a number of uh, different environments in the last few years where we've used um, cloud-based agents to, to uh, monitor and log activity in cloud-based systems and to ensure um, that our security posture is consistent um, to roll out uh, you know, new um, cloud-based servers in a, in a secure baseline configuration. So, so from my perspective, it's been pretty positive. Uh, in deploying the security capability we currently have. Um, and the speed to deploy has been um, you know, improved as well. And speed to react automation um, has, has proven to be easier. Um, but for, for me, the next piece we need to tackle is around third-party components. And, um, and yeah, really understanding you know, what the business wants to communicate with, because quite often we talk about cloud like it's an amorphous blob of, of um, systems and applications, but obviously it can be it can be any system anywhere that's connected to the internet. Um, and, and sharing data across those systems tends to be quite a challenge as well. And we have, you know, we we, we come across a lot of technologies in this space that look at um, cloud access security brokerage and make sure you can restrict or manage at least um, access to those resources. And, uh, and that's there's been some huge steps forward there. You know, I can, I can name five vendors at the top of my head that push out really good products in this space. Is making sure those those security tools are integrated and giving you the right information. They're properly tuned, and then they're working. So, obviously, testing is key. Uh, so, from from my perspective, and purely through a security lens, it's been very positive. I think the thing that really bothers me at the moment is what what my suppliers are doing in that space because the picture is so varied, and you know, not all of them are doing what we're doing, for example. So. What are they doing? How are they delivering security? How are they monitoring their systems? How are they testing them? And how are they testing those third-party components in particular? Thanks, Paul, I think I think Darren is is pretty much said it all. He's he's he made an interesting point over software bill of materials. Uh, I think most of us know where we were when Log4 Shell hit in December of 2021. It was, I think, that really highlighted um, what's been you know, murmuring you know, for a number of months or a year, certainly stateside. And I think it is more, I speak to a lot of um, global um, CISOs and CIOs and SVOM is very focused over in the, the US, less so um, in in EMEA at the moment, but I think it's gonna start to raise, especially with the sort of the governance and frameworks that, that are coming out um, at the moment. We, we talk about shift left all the time in DevOps security and I think you know, just a cloud adoption is, is absolutely no different. As long as security is on the journey from the start, um, I don't think any organization should be scared at adopting, you know, cloud-based solutions of any kind. But as long as security is there, it's a, 
to, to run those checks and balances to make sure that the business is going in the right direction. Um, yeah, you know, I think Darren mentioned as well, biz, business risk, business appetite is, you know, the security teams are there to present the risks to the organization, not to say yes or no. And it's for the organization to then dictate or to determine to whether or not they go forward or they change their way. So is that alignment with that business understanding and the business strategy as well? Well, uh, anything's odd, James? Uh, some great thoughts from my fellow panelists. Um, I, I think they've covered most of it. The, um, I always think sort of that, you know, the vendor risk management is, the, is obviously the right kind of initial answer to this question. Um, and it, it always bemuses me that organizations sort of confuse not having to do the task in-house or not having to maintain the skill or not having to care about it. It always strikes me that vendor risk management is an expression of care um, and it needs to be rooted, you know, to Paul's point in, a, in an understanding of risk, you know, what really matters to your business, um, whether that's, you know, a conversation with business stakeholders or threat modeling or, you know, a fundamental risk assessment, you know, some some sense of what it is that might do me harm or cost me money or damage my brand. Um, and it, and it, it, it always surprises me a little bit when vendor risk management is this sort of dragnet of spreadsheets that you know tries to measure everything that can possibly be measured rather than actually being an exercise of care that really focuses on the thing that matters so you know my my, my bugbear and kind of partly the prompt for this question is 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 really nailing that that you know these these approaches these frameworks really need to be things that actually get us to the nub of what matters rather than just sort of you know slightly mindless byzantine compliance exercises Mr. paul yeah, um, uh, James. Uh, again, I think it's hit it on the the, the nail on the head. It, it's a, it, it's complex. I mean, I work for a security vendor, um, but we also have um, supply chains ourselves. We are customers of other vendors, and that web just increases and increases and increases. How far down the rabbit hole can you go? Not if you want to go. You know, how many levels deep is acceptable? Um, before you start getting lost um, in the weeds. And I'm wondering if the governance and frameworks will allow us um, to be able to sort of understand that a little bit better. Um, because I'm sure people will will do the bare minimum um, because it is a very busy world that we we live in at the moment. But I, I think we need a little bit more steer um, on what is what is right. Thanks, Paul. Darren? Yeah, echoing that last point really around, um, you know, how deep do you go with your vendors? We, we, we use um, a tool which does third-party uh, scanning of our vendors, you know, of their security posture and gives you an indication, security scorecard type stuff, which is great. We've actually got access to three different platforms for, for reasons which I won't go into now, and they will give you something slightly different. So whilst they're a good indicator, you know, that they can't be relied upon as, as a sole um, approach to uh, supplier security assurance. So, again, you know, I have the same problem with spreadsheets, um, <laughs> which you know, there's a really funny meme. Well, I think it's funny, a funny meme on the internet that um, talks about, you know, I, I can see the auditor coming in saying, I can see you've got these 15 different independently audited certifications and, you know, your supply chain management is in scope of those certifications, but here's my 200 page uh, spreadsheet, which you need to answer now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and it, that is that is representative of the experience, right? Because every time we go to a supplier, particularly if we're selling um, selling the service to a third party, they don't care about our certifications. What they care about is us answering their spreadsheet because their spreadsheet contains the context of their organization, which may not be quite aligned with ours. So um, I think it's going to continue to be a fairly painful desktop exercise for many of us uh, for some time. But I think as the, um, the provenance of these technical risks continues to rise in our supply chain, we're going to have to take a different view because the desktop-based assessment is just not going to cut it. That's what's going to be the big change, right? Sure. Thanks, Darren. 
Okay, well, Darren, we'll stay with you if you can uh, pose your question. Yeah, sure. So, um, subject that's close to my heart at the moment is um, uh, AI and large language models. I've been given the uh, onerous task of building a governance framework around it. So, my question to the panel is with ChatGPT reaching 100 million users worldwide in just two months, um, how should organizations um, enable users to effectively but securely, uh, securely rather, adopt AI and large language models? Thanks, Darren. Paul, come to you first. Carefully. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just a one-word answer. Um, we're in the uh, we're in the fourth industrial revolution now. AI, automation, quantum computing. Um, it's here to stay. It, it's not going anywhere. Um, so we have to understand. I, I don't want to point fingers at countries like Italy that have just banned ChatGPT. I think that is personally the wrong way to approach adoption of technologies. Um, we need to put education around um, AI, certainly within organizations, to understand what, what we're trying to achieve with it and the potential pitfalls and dangers of it as well. I mean, if we look at um, Samsung, you know, their engineers put very, you know, sensitive code. Uh, these are very intelligent people, yet they use ChatGPT knowing it was a public service and it was being recorded and put sensitive code on ChatGPT. Um, so if, if, if they're going to be doing it, what's the rest of the workforce? Um, so we need to do that education piece. We then need to look at putting controls um, in place. Um, now, they could be very strict controls. They could be permanent bans. It depends. Again, it's about risk, it's about appetite, it's about the way the business wants to go. Um, but we're going to understand that um, a lot of people think that AI is ChatGPT, and that's it. Every time you say AI, everybody thinks about ChatGPT straight away. AI, including uh, the vendor I work for, AI is now in everything, everything that we do. And, and certainly, AI was meant to be the big bang in 2023. It's not. It's been a, a slow murmur. I think next year you're going to see a lot more vendors coming out with a lot more functionality based around AI. So if you haven't got that governance and controls in place now, you're going to really struggle because you can't go to, say, Microsoft Office and say, no, thank you, I don't want that feature. You know, if you're on the, the E5 license or whatever, it's, it's, uh, it's all or nothing. Um, you have no choice in that matter. So getting, getting those controls in place now is the, definitely the right thing to do. Thanks, Paul. Ivan? I think uh, Paul's on the money there. Uh, that, uh, that train's left the station already. And uh, people uh, people must try to, to catch up if they haven't. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we are in November of 2023. And if, uh, you know, a, a company doesn't have a strategy already uh, that addresses most of those things, they are already too late, to be fair. Uh, now, it might be terrible, it might not be terrible. It really depends on, you know, the, the business, the industry and so on. Uh, but in my view, uh, things are relatively simple. Uh, first and foremost, there must be a foundational strategy that's aligned to obviously the business itself, to the objectives and so on. At the same time, that strategy must account for the light, for the right level of education and training for people. Because, again, we touched on on, on that one. Uh, it's so crucial for for people to obviously uh, get a feel for what and how. Uh, if you let it, you know, to purely experimentation, it's not going to end up well. And and then we know it. Uh, on the other side. Uh, 
as Paul said again, uh, those things are there. They're not going away. They're you know they're going to become more and more prevalent going forward. So uh, there is absolutely no space for error at this stage. It is something that needs to be accounted for. It is something that uh, needs to be kind of baked in into all aspects of a business. It is something that shouldn't be only looked at by us as in security professionals. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, in, in my obviously previous role now, uh, it was something that uh, I had to talk some length with our legal team, with many other people in the company, and we had to obviously uh, uh, try and uh, address it holistically. And uh, again, in my view, that's that's the only way how those things should be approached. And ultimately, uh, the, the foundations must be already in place uh, for, uh, for successful use and uh, not to, uh, if you want, on the other side, uh, start having much, much bigger problems when it comes to privacy, when it comes to intellectual property, and so on and so on. Thanks, Will. James? Um, I th I'm really glad that somebody's got to the, the point I usually make already, which is, you know, your users are probably using it already. Um, and having this conversation in the context of a discussion about cloud is, is particularly apropos, right? Because, you know, Paul's example is a fantastic one. Almost every major cloud tool either has integrated AI in some form into its stack already or will do and we'll only see it continuing to grow. Um, you know, organizations that haven't thought about this already, it, it's start thinking about this as a, as a shadow IT problem. And, and I don't mean that in the way that we sometimes do in a less enlightened way in the sort of um, in less mature IT teams where we, you know, try and stomp on things rather than understand uh, how to do them safely. It's an exercise in partnership with the organization. And, you know, we've we've heard the word kind of awareness and education several times already. That's absolutely the right place to start. Um, your, your user population need to understand what some of the risks might be in, in the same way they do in any area where they make decisions about data, whether it's procurement or data protection. Um, but but beyond that, it's a it's a governance problem. You know, you need to understand where you're using this tech and, and Having done that, you then need to be able to lean in closer to teams where it makes sense to lean in closer. Um, you probably want to do that in conjunction with whatever pre-existing business engagement framework you've got for cybersecurity, for data protection, for information governance. It's going to depend on the DNA of the organization, but you need some kind of breakouts and breakpoint within that process that allows you to put a sandbox around uh, instances where you want to partner with your organization in order to do these things safely. I think that's the kind of, that's the first piece. Um, some organizations, you know, jumping straight to kind of, well, we need a, you know, data ethicist or an AI ethicist or an advisory council. Those could be really great things if you've already got the ability to kind of bring chunky, meaty questions to people who can answer them. But actually, in most instances, people don't need that yet. They need that first part. They need the governance bit. Um, I think once you get to the point of, you know, what does it mean for my organization, that's that's where it starts to kind of very much more wildly. Um, but but the, the word I always use with organizations who are asking me this question is is intentionality. You, you can't deploy tech nowadays without an intent. Um, and, you know, in, in very kind of 1980s language, we think in data protection about purpose limitation, about, about how we link the data we're using to a specific purpose. It's exactly the same. The only difference is when we start talking about uh, technology, which is highly probabilistic, where there are sort of second or third order effects, whether it's within the model you're using or exhaust data or effect on populations, you need to be strapping a much more nuanced and sophisticated life cycle around in, in, the, in the walls of that sandbox, in effect, to help you understand what some of those effects might be and you know 
bias, kind of algorithmic comprehension. There are all sorts of different facets, but it's I think it's I think it's those pieces. It's you know it's the governance piece. It's some sort of life cycle for intentionality, some sandbox that then lets you partner. And once you have some of that plumbing in place, you know, it starts to be easier, I think, to sort of respond to the sort of resource constraints that you're immediately going to run into if you're already an overworked cybersecurity team trying to figure out how you do that on you know Tuppence Hapney and someone's Tuesday afternoon. Makes sense. Paul, in general? Um, I'm glad James mentioned about um, data governance because um, I, I'm no AI expert, but at the end of the day, AI, AI needs to consume data. Um, so how, you may not need to um, govern the AI tools, but at least have an understanding of your data sets within your organization. And at least, as James mentioned, sort of ring fence, but ring fence in that data that may be considered sensitive and not, you know, having different gates and different levels um, to where AI can consume um, your corporate data might be an approach to being able to control AI because you're not going to be able to control every single application um, that's coming into um, your organization. Um, as it's been said, we're all consuming products that is going to have AI in it now or in the future. So look at governing your data to what it exposure it has to. might be a good way of doing it. Well, Darren? Yeah, so um, just to loop back around, I guess, because I absolutely agree. There's there's lots of, um, even LinkedIn's got an AI option on it now, and Bing has, and there's, there's loads of stuff that's already built into it. So it's already been introduced via a side channel, if you like. And we're seeing that with a lot of our vendors as well. They're introducing AI capability and functionality into products we already consume, but without extending or changing the scope of their engagement. So, you know, they'll operate effectively outside of contract, if, if you want to take it to the letter of the law. Um, but... That being said, uh, a lot of this comes back to a lot of the things we'd like to do from a cybersecurity perspective depend very much on good basic uh, cyber hygiene being in place. Now, we've been talking, I think, uh, I don't mean to speak for everybody, but I think we've been talking generally in terms of the large enterprise out there. You'll have lots of small to medium businesses out there that don't have these good basic cyber hygiene controls in, in place and are spilling data all over the place as a result of rapid adoption of these this new, new technology in inverted commas. And, you know, to your point earlier, AI has been around in one version or another since 1956. So um, it's probably nothing new, but the data loss prevention tooling or capability or strategy needs to be in place. And that does come back to good governance and knowing where your data is and what's allowed to be done with it. Uh, Paul actually prodded prodded me thinking about something. So um, your organization, obviously, as a vendor, uh, tries to do something with client data. I was uh, web help, you know, uh, in, in, in similar term, uh, can use client data, can use data from, you know, one client to try and figure out something good for another and so on. So on one side, we have that situation where we are eager to do it as, as providers. On the other, as clients, we are eager to protect our data, and obviously there is the issue of data stewardship and where data goes and how it's been used. And I, I frequently myself had that you know conflict. I know what we're trying to use someone's data and 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 how and for their benefit, but then Darren mentioned it. You know, effectively, the second you start introducing some of those things, you start operating outside of the contract potentially, uh, and all sorts of other questions start opening. So. 
I guess what's what's your take on that one, Paul? Because we are in an interesting situation where we sit really on both sides of the camp. Yeah, that's that's you put me on the spot there. <laughs> no, no, I, I I agree. Um, you know, data is is king um, in in you know any organization, any vendor, anything. Um, for us having that collective view of what's going on across a cybersecurity platform across so many different verticals and trying to do the right thing, which is collating that data, anomalize and being able to present it back in a useful way back to our clients again to say, you know, we're seeing a cyber incident in your vertical. Um, but as as Dara mentioned and, and you mentioned again, you have to be very careful with how you stretch that contractual agreement with your, your clients um, and making sure that you're always doing the right thing um, because the, you know the release of data is is uh, I always take it as a, a company extinction event um, not many organizations cybersecurity organizations would be able to come back from um, a leak of sensitive data. You know, with my organization, we hold vulnerability data. So having that data leaked out, um, you know, the the warts and all of every organization is, is very, very, very dangerous. So we have so much governance around it and so much visibility around it to make sure that we are doing the right things. Again, it's back to having those checks and balances in place and having that governance in place to make sure that we are doing the right thing. But also going back to the customer asking the customer there's a lot of things that we do with the data that we have approached our customers and said are we doing the right thing you know for you as an organization um and getting that acknowledgement that we are going the right direction thanks paul okay that was a good uh, <laughs> a good point that would raise a few, a few extra questions okay so finally yeah we'll come to you Ivan, for your question there please Indeed. So as digital surveillance becomes more pervasive and quantum attacks become more imminent, how prepared are you to face the security challenges of cloud computing, obviously, given those new aspects? Thanks, Christoph. James, we'll come to you first. Saving the um, saving the smallest question to last. Um, that's an enormous question. I mean, I suspect the honest answer from most organizations is is not, um, particularly on on quantum computing. You know, it's it's I, th I think I suspect for most organizations not quite yet part of their cybersecurity strategy. Um, maybe I'll kind of dig into the first half more, and, and we can sort of swim around to the to the, the quantum bit. The 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 surveillance point i think particularly in my space is a is a, a really interesting one so I, I work with nonprofits. Nonprofits often step in where governments have failed in, in one way or another um that might mean there's been a civil war or a you know failure of the social security system so you know sort of large international organizations are really interesting in terms of their cloud adoption because um they have threat models firstly that often include sort of state and non-state actors who are interested in what they're doing um they're often hit by uh sort of data sovereignty legislation lots of countries now are, are passing um, statutes of one form or another that restrict the export of, of data, which it makes it very difficult to use cloud. Um, there are also often challenges just in terms of, um, you know, using cloud in places where there are kind of no points of presence or whether the internet's inconsistent, a whole separate side topic. Um, but often they also have to maintain independence with a capital I and, and, you know, potentially even have it articulated in terms of their kind of registration. They sort of live outside national borders. Um, with cloud, that's really difficult. You know, all of a sudden you've got this sort of um, this supply chain that makes you contingent on a range of, um, you know, organizations that are registered inside national borders and where in order to understand that you are independent, in order 
to understand that you are safe. You have to order all of those organizations, kind of fold them into your organizational boundary. It's it's very unclear. Um, you know, the, the question of to adopt, not to adopt, I think for, for these kinds of organizations when when digital surveillance as part of their threat model is, is a really difficult one. And, and, you know, you can see already actually in the last couple of weeks that um, the UNICC, which is like the IT department for the United Nations, uh, started building a, a private cloud with Canonical um, uh, specifically in order to have something that they have so, kind of sovereignty over. Um, I don't think there are any any easy answers to this question. Um, uh, certainly if you're a government customer and, you know, you've got access to sort of um, our heightened programs for assurance, there are, you know, ways that you can kind of deal with this working very directly with cloud vendors. But if you're if you're below the level in terms of you know access or resourcing to be able to do that, it's very tricky. Yes, Darren, you? Yeah, so I'm, I'm fairly fortunate at the moment, and um, for the last five years, certainly I've worked in an organisation that's more or less exclusively UK based. So uh, we've not we've not run into um, cross border issues that we we typically would do if we were a global organisation. Um, although we do you know we do share information with our um, European counterparts, and obviously the legislation in those territories varies drastically, even though it's under GDPR, it tends to vary country by country in terms of the controls they expect. So um, it's not something I've had to tackle head on. Um, I think we, we've not seen attacks um, either that we could attribute to any any sort of quantum computing based attack. Where it's been that sophisticated as trying to crack um, you know, our algorithms or our encryption in any way, shape or form. So we've not really seen that. Um, and it's not something I've had to consider in a previous role either. So I'll, I'll probably, I'll, I don't want to waffle <laughs> because I'm not allowed to think about it. So I'll, I'll ask you to move on, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Darren. Okay, we'll go to you, Paul. Um, yeah, it is, it is a big question. Um, I had a look at this question. And um, if we ignore the first bit first um, and ask the question, how prepared are we to face security challenges of cloud computing? Um, I think most organizations would bow their head um, and say that they are struggling with that um, in its entirety. And especially, I'm sorry, I think it was James that mentioned um, smaller organizations. We're here, to, we're talking about enterprises all the time that have the resources, but certainly smaller organizations might not have access to those resources or all that money. And then you add quantum computing into that, it, it just it exponentially um, grows. I don't think anybody's prepared for a quantum attack. Um, the, the way I treat or the way I look at cybersecurity and the way I talk to other CISOs and CIOs is we're here to shrink that target on your back. We're not here to remove it because we can't. If you have a nation state that's knocking on your door that wants something that you have, they're going to get it. Um, it may take them a day, a minute, an hour, a year, whatever, but they are going to come through that door at some point and they are going to get it. And obviously quantum computing accelerates that the other interesting point of quantum attacks or quantum computing is certain nation states are doing a lot of um, data gathering at the moment gathering all of that data that has you know what we're now considering old encryption keys that you know very shortly quantum computing in theory should be able to crack now how how value is that data who knows you know i'm sure they could pick apart it and, and find some nuggets of information. So I think everybody from small, medium to enterprise to governments are just going to struggle with quantum because it, it's such a big thing. James? 
I am. Um, I, I kind of wanted to respond to that point about you know I, I love I love that metaphor. The you know our job is not to remove the target; it's to make it smaller or kind of make you aware of it, which I think is actually the right approach. We're, we're um um it was trendy for a little while to throw around the phrase OODA loop, like you know kind of orientation decision making. Um, we're, we're used to these quite short timeframes over which we make decisions about prevention or detection or response in cybersecurity. And I think one of the interesting things about um, about quantum is that it it slightly it slightly plays with our sense of time. You know, the the, the premise essentially that fancy math builds really good walls has been quite a foundational premise for most of our careers. You know, modern sort of public private key or symmetric cryptography has been a staple part of cybersecurity for the last, you know, 30 years. Um, and, and we're very used to the way that it works. But that, that point Paul made about, you know, governments who collect and uh, uh, decipher data is, is a really interesting one. There's, for anyone who's a, a sort of um, cryptography nerd, um, you'll know about the Venona project, which is this um, uh, massive data that was uh, uh, stored by the United States that was sort of Soviet enciphered messages that were being uh, decrypted all the way up into the 1990s from from the 1940s um, because the, the the process of breaking the cryptography took such a long time, but the messages still had value. We're not used to really thinking about that longevity of, and for most organizations, it's not a problem too, right? But we're not used to thinking with that kind of longevity. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're a pharmaceutical company, if you've got really interesting intellectual property, if you hold data on people that might be subject to kind of blackmail or, you, you know, any, anything with sort of high, the high enough economic value problem, that it's worth hanging on to data, that it's worth operating over these large timeframes. You probably do need to think, be thinking about thinking about it now. Um, very few of us, of course, will. But I think I, I, I asked one of the previous questions by sort of going, you know, think about your threat and your risk model. And, and just on the quantum one, I think my my usual advice to organisations who are panicking about this is, you know, go around your organisation, make a try and make a list of of places where you're using cryptography that aren't the sort of commercial problems that we'll all band together around. You know, if, if suddenly there was a, a, a quantum computing break of, you know, kind of payment card processing, you know, you be a reasonably good bet that the payment card industry will rally around with acquiring banks and merchants and there'll be a, a very good group response. But if you're using crypto for some niche thing with interesting intellectual property or genetic data or something, that, that probably isn't going to happen. You probably want to be making a sort of inventory of spaces where you know maybe this will be an issue for you in a year, five years, 10 years, maybe never. But thinking about those kind of harms in a, in a sort of longer term sort of way it's not going to give you the solution but it's, it's going to give you a sense how big that target is if you like so i think that kind of that harm-based approach is, is is probably where i would start thanks what what prodded me to to add the quantum bits to the mix was actually uh over the last couple of weeks there was a, a lot of noise around some of those things you're probably aware uk finance uh, two weeks back, went out with a very bold statement that the entire UK payment system will go down um, if anybody, you know, manages to uh, to effectively uh, get to the encryption algorithms and uh, and and can crack uh, PKI that sits behind it. And then, lo and behold, uh, less than a week ago, uh, by the way, I do love to read some obscure internet news sources, and there's this uh, very interesting site quantum side case. Uh, the guy over there actually claims that uh, using a hardware from a, a commercial smartphone, he actually managed to break RSA 2048. And allegedly, it's been validated by Mr. R from RSA. And, you know, within a period of two weeks, you have one very significant institution telling us 
UK payment system will go down. It's at risk if this happens. And then less than a week later, you have someone out there claiming that, hey, I managed to break this thing that everything's based on. So where do we go from here? You know, are we talking about something that's really down the line? Are we talking about that's here and now? In that case, anything and everything that, that you know, we have in the cloud, uh, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, encrypted uh, data at rest or, uh, you know, communication channels, VPNs, whatnot, everything's at risk. So are we really ready to, to accept that and then to which extent do organizations actually understand what they have out there, where and how it's stored? Does it pose an immediate problem or do they have a bit of a time to think how to go about it? So, uh, yeah, I think we are in for a very, very interesting and possibly quite a bumpy ride. Thanks, Ivan. Paul? <laughs> when is it not bumpy? <laughs> um, I, I just want to follow on from your point, and I hadn't really considered it before. But we, we are looking at encryption. We're looking at S bomb for encryption. You know the, that log four shell incident that is going to happen with an encryption that is going to then generate legislation. It's then going to generate governance. It's then going to, you know, security vendors are going to come out with ways to be able to, you know, um, asset your encryption keys and understand where things are because it, just digital certificates on their own how many times have you worked for vendors and you don't need to name them but i've been doing this for 25 years where a certificate has expired because you've forgotten about that certificate and the next thing you know you have you know your customers or, or whoever have got that ssl warning on the screen because you've forgotten to renew it now how many encryption keys are floating around there and how much encryption has been used over the past 20 30 40 years that has just been forgotten about it's been hard coded into some custom software and so i think at some point organizations not start need to look under the hoods to see where or what state as you mentioned ivan is what state their encryption is in across their entire organization before another log four shell hits them with encryption. Correct. And that might be a product I might suggest to uh, my company. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any further points to add? Well, I, I was quite relaxed when we started this, but I, uh, I'm not now. So <laughs> thanks, Ivan. <laughs> I think I think that's probably the KPI for success in any cybersecurity discussion, right? It's the level of stress increases throughout the awesome. Uh, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're running into Christmas, aren't we? So it's we're, we're hitting the quiet period of cybersecurity. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, well, uh, that's, uh, we'll leave it there. So uh, this has been Evolution Exchange Podcast. Uh, I want to take this opportunity to thank the panel for their time and providing their insights into the topic. And thank you for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get involved in one of our up-and-coming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at robert.wall, evolutionjobs.co.uk. And we will see you next time. Thank you.